Today I said we'd talk about Jesus, and uh, I figured the best way to do that is to just take these things that we say about him, that you might have heard about him, and talk about where they come from. Um, so the brief recap that I like to do before everyone, week one we talked about religion, what's the meaning of everything. Week two we talked about how Christianity answers that question differently than everybody else, that we're called to be one with God. Um, and um, actually, today's gospel was really cool. Um, it was the parable of the talents, and at the end of, um, well, part, in, in, during it, uh, we hear, uh, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come uh, join your master's joy. Greater things than this will be given to you. And those words kind of tell us what we're expecting for eternity. Um, that if we are good and faithful servants, that we'll share our master's joy, um, but that he'll give us even more in this next life uh, to come, more joy than we can handle, but also stuff to do. Because a lot of times, if you think about eternity as like this heaven where we praise God the whole time, at least in my mind, when I phrase it that way, it sounds super boring. <laughs> You know, um, but we'll be active. We will have things to do. Um, it's not going to be this just sit there and stare for whatever eternity feels like. <laughs> you know, it'll be um, something full of joy, but also full of action. Um, anyways, then last week we talked about what uh, is called the kerygma. Um, so why is there something rather than nothing? Why is everything obviously messed up? What has God done about it? And if God's done something, what should my response be? That's the summary in four questions. Um, so essentially we were created, we were captured by sin and evil. Uh, God sent his son to rescue us. And now we just ponder what our response to that is gonna be. And so today we're gonna talk about Jesus who is the one who came to save us, and all of that. Um, first off, the first thing we got to know about Jesus is that he is human, all right? Fully human, not like half human, fully human. Um, there's a lot of debate in the early church. So the first 300 years of church history, um, there was a lot of persecution, okay? Uh, from the very beginning of Christ's life until the martyrdom of Stephen, which would have been soon after the resurrection. Um, you know, it wasn't so bad, but after that, the Romans started blaming not just the Jews, but especially these Christians who were sort of like the Jews, but were a bit more belligerent than even them, right? They just wouldn't cooperate with the various emperor worship and stuff like that. And so they turned the Christians into scapegoats. So you see like Nero uh, using Christians as human torches in Rome, like literally lining the streets and using them as torches. This isn't the worst thing the Romans have done. Um, they were pretty terrible, like, and, um, excellent in a terrible way at torturing people, like when they had the slave revolts in the three or four hundreds BC, or maybe it was two hundreds, I don't know. It was BC several hundred years. Um, they basically lined a road with crucified slaves to show them never do that again. Um, so when the Romans wanted to make a point, they were pretty brutal about it. Um, 
So you have those persecutions for the first 300 years of the church. But right after we come out of that age of persecution, um, we start having to realize, okay, so it was really easy to say we were Christian when the most important thing we had to do was say we believe in Jesus and have the courage to die for that. Um, I mean, it's not easy. (laughs) It takes a lot of courage to do that, but it's pretty straightforward. Now that we're not being persecuted, we want to understand what we believe a little bit more deeply. Um, So the earliest debates in the church were, was Jesus fully human, Um, amongst other things. So Jesus was born of Mary. That's what this section is called. And I think one of the best ways to learn about Jesus is to look at what we say about him in the Bible, right? Uh, To go to our sacred scriptures and read that. And I think next week I'm going to talk about the Bible in general. I know it's kind of like putting the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse. Wow, I almost did that backwards. Uh, It's a little like putting the cart before the horse. Um, But to understand Jesus, you really have to go to the Bible as a source. And so in the Gospel of Matthew... Um, gives us great big long genealogy. There's actually a lot of fascinating things in there, but I've done enough of talking at you guys um, with stuff that I find interesting, but probably isn't super necessary. (laughs) Um, This part, though, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. Excuse me. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit, Joseph, her husband, since he was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to shame, decided decided to divorce her quietly. Such was his intention when, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home, for it is through the Holy Spirit that this child has been conceived in her. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took his wife into his home. He had no relations with her until she bore a son, and he named him Jesus. So there's a lot in this passage that we can learn about Jesus. Um, And the two kind of bullet points I put below here are, um, the two big takeaways are, the incarnation, so God became man, and also that Jesus was fully human. Um, So you also get an account of this in Luke's gospel, but um, I picked Matthew just because he's the first one. So we learn who Jesus's parents are, that he had two human parents, right? Um, Now, Joseph was not Um, a father in the very human sense of the term. He was a foster father to Jesus um, because Mary was the one found with child and it was given to her by the Holy Spirit. Um, We call that the Annunciation and it's recounted in Luke's gospel. So um, that's what tells us this child comes from God. But the fact that Mary is bearing this child tells us that he's fully human, right? because, and he received that humanity from his mother. Um, so that's one of the reasons that as Catholics, we really like Mary, right? That we have all these hymns to Mary, that we have all these praises to Mary because 
she did something incredible. She was the mother of Jesus. And um, a little later on, I'll talk about how that also means we can say she's the mother of God. Um, not like God the Father, God the Spirit, she's the mother of Jesus. But because Jesus is God, we can also say Mary is the mother of God. Um, we learn about St. Joseph, and I'm going to just plug Joseph because we're in St. Joseph's church, right? We love St. Joseph here. <laughs> um, so Joseph was a righteous man. Um, other translations say he was a just man. This is the greatest compliment you can give to a Jewish man, that he was righteous, that he was just, that he followed the law, because that was their goal, is to follow the law because that's how we follow God. So by saying he was righteous, they're saying he was actually the best guy you can possibly run into. Um, so out of this unwillingness to expose her to shame, decided to divorce, divorce her quietly um, because he's like, this is not my child. Now there's debate over exactly why he wanted to do this. That's a rabbit hole we don't need to go down today. Um, but um, because that was his intention... An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and tells him, don't be afraid. You'll notice that every time you read the Bible and you see an angel appearing, they say, don't be afraid. Um, so he says, take Mary into your home because this is a gift from the Holy Spirit. This is a gift from God. Um, she will have a son. Also, the angel tells him that this son should be named Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is our translation of a Hebrew name that honestly, to me, I don't know why we translate it Jesus, because in Hebrew, it's Yeshua, as in Joshua, as in the same guy in the Old Testament. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Joshua, and it means the Lord saves. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how we wound up with Jesus as his name in English. Um, I'm sure there's a reason. I just don't know what it is. Um, but the name means the Lord saves. Um, and then the angel even tells us this. He will save the people from their sins, right? Um, and then we have the prophecy. This is from Isaiah. I think it's chapter 61. So it's exciting when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. It gets the biblical scholars real excited um, every single time. Um, and then Joseph takes Mary into his home. Uh, just another note on that last line. It always trips people up. So again, it's a product of our translation into English. Um, it says he had no relations with her until she bore a son, and he named him Jesus. Um, the way in English that we understand the word until implies that it began after that. Um, the Greek that is translated into until does not have that implication. Um, so it's, we just don't have a good word to translate it otherwise. Um, that doesn't have an implication that, like, because if I say, I didn't do that until two o'clock, in English it implies I did it at two o'clock, but in Greek, if I use the preposition they use, it doesn't have that implication. Um, it just is like, he didn't do that. It's like, I don't know why they were so specific, but that's just how Greek works. 
according to the biblical scholars. All right, I got a little excited quoting the Bible for the next section. So that was that Jesus is the son of Mary, right? Uh, a gift from the Father to Mary, but fully the son of Mary. Um, I have a lot more Bible quote on the other side. Um, I won't read the whole thing. We have this really beautiful beginning to the Gospel of John here. And I just encourage you when you get a chance to read through it, um, because it's one of the most incredible works, not just of religion, but um, literature as well. Um, John's Gospel has this really great quality to it, and the beginning of John's Gospel has a beautiful poetry to it. Um, so I just encourage you guys to read through this, um, to perhaps um, bring it to prayer. Um, and to do that, all you do is just kind of read through it and sit with it in silence and think about it, honestly. That's the easiest way to pray with scriptures. Um, but then, why did I put that there? All right. So my two bullet points that I wanted to make under here is that uh, Jesus was begotten. Um, he was not made. Um, and so we get these two lines from the creed that he was begotten, not made, and he's um, consubstantial, which is a technical term, with the Father. And so those two things are illustrated by these passages here. So what that means is there's a couple of different ways things can come into existence, right? Um, the way that human beings come into existence is, you know, their parents in cooperation with God. Um, the way that most things come into existence is through that. But the way that angelic creatures, for example, come into existence is they're simply willed into existence by God. But the way that the Son of God comes into existence, um, the way Jesus comes into existence is this special way. And we don't really understand what it is. Um, but what we do know is that he existed before time, right? So there's not ever a time where he didn't exist. And that hurts your head to think about. How do you exist before time? That's a great question. How does anything exist before time? We don't know, but somehow it did. Um, and when we say he's consubstantial with the Father, what that means is he's the same kind of thing, right? Um, that he has the same existence as the Father, all right? Um, and so if I dig too deep into here, I start getting into Trinity stuff, and that's for later because we need a little bit more of a background to understand the Trinity. Well, we'll never understand the Trinity, um, but to really get into that. Um, but those are the two things to know, is that Jesus comes from the Father in a way that's kind of special that nothing else in creation, or technically he's outside of creation, but in a way that nothing else does. Um, it's in this special way. Um, because Jesus, as the Son, actually helps to create the world. Um, so in Genesis, when we read the stories of creation, that's the action of the Father and the Son creating together. Um, and that's really what this long set of verses from John's gospel is, is it's account of the creation, it's an account of the creation 
but from a different perspective. You have that a number of times in the Bible. Um, that, uh, anyways, and then I put that in the wrong section. Oh, okay, that's why I put it here. So I was telling them I was up too late last night waiting for someone to get to my house so that I could lock the door and go to bed. And uh, I put this together last night because I was in Kansas City for a wedding this week. And I kind of ran out of time to do my normal prep. Um, I had plans. I just didn't quite get them executed as well this time. So... I got to figure out what I was thinking when I put this in here last night um, on a couple of these. So this line here, uh, at the bottom of that page, it's a few verses from Matthew chapter 3. And this is the account from when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in Galilee. And the line I really want to highlight there is that voice from the heavens saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Um, so that's just further... Uh, biblical evidence that Jesus is a son of the Father, um, that he's fully God, right? So the two most important things to know about Jesus is he's fully human and fully God. Um, those debates that I mentioned in the early church about who Jesus was, those were the first two arguments we had, all right? Um, we had, and I'll talk about this a little more in depth later, uh, but we had people who said Jesus wasn't fully human, all right, because it's not dignified for a God to become human, therefore he can't. And we're like, that's the whole point, that God was very humble and came to save us. And then on the other side, you get these people arguing, well, he's not God, right, because God can't fit in a human body, you know. Um, that's not how this works. And we said, again, that's kind of the point, you know. God became human, um, because if he didn't become human, then he can't save us. I'll get to that in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. The next section on here is the Christ, okay? So we call Jesus the Christ, right? Um, we call him the Christ so often that most of us think that that's his last name, you know, Jesus of the Christ family, uh, that Joseph's name was Christ. No, that is not the case. Um, it would make things a little bit easier, but Christ is a title. It comes from the Greek word Christos, and it means the anointed one. It's the same word used to mean Messiah in the Old Testament. So in Hebrew, the word is Messiah. In Greek, it's Christos, and in English, it's Christ. Um, and so we see this in scripture made very clear, um, the day where Jesus goes to the synagogue. So he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, which is where he grew up. It's in Northern Israel. You can still go to Nazareth today. It's a mostly, uh, Arab population. Although I think it's on the Israeli side of the security border, although that whole country is a mess right now, um, but there are, um, like you have the Basilica of the Annunciation and a few other things in Nazareth, um, a few Christian sites there. Um, and so right after this part of the gospel where Christ reads this from the prophet Isaiah, 
he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. And so this is the part of the prophet Isaiah where they're talking about the Messiah who is going to come and save us. And that word in there, he has anointed me. That means he is the Christ. And so when he says, uh, he rolls up the scroll, sits down, and when you were in a synagogue, if you sat down, that is a position of authority. So the one who was teaching sat down. So like for us, I'm standing, which means I'm the one kind of teaching right now. Um, but it was exactly the opposite way in synagogue. So he would sit and they would listen. And his teaching for that day consisted entirely of the just saying, today the scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's making a really bold claim here. And this can be lost on us if we're not paying attention because what, Christ is, what Jesus is saying here is, I am the anointed one from God who is sent to save you from your sins. That's essentially what he's saying here. Um, which is kind of a big deal. You, I forgot to put the citation on this, my apologies. Um, but it's kind of a big deal because there's a lot of people who say Jesus never tells us that he's God in the Gospels. He most certainly does. And this is one of those places. He's telling us he is the anointed one who has come from God to save us. Um, and... So the response of the people in the synagogue is they're amazed for a little bit. And then they say, wait, we know where this guy came from. He's Joseph's kid, right? Um, and then they chase him out of town and they try to throw him off a mountain. Um, and if you go to Nazareth, they will take you up a mountain and say, this is the one they tried to throw him off of. And I'm not sure if it's the same mountain, but... It is really high, and it's a long walk up there, which is one of the reasons I'm not sure it's the right mountain, because I would, I mean, the crowd couldn't have stayed angry that long. It's not possible, right? <laughs> or maybe they could have, but um, anyways, um, they tried to throw him off a mountain because he made this claim, which also tells us that he knew what he was doing, and the people around him recognized this as a claim of divinity, and so if they didn't think he was actually God, then that means they thought he was blaspheming, which is why they wanted to throw him off a mountain, because the penalty for blasphemy was death, um, especially when you're claiming to be God and they don't think you are. Um, so the bullet point there was he's proclaim it's his mission of salvation that he's proclaiming, and he's anointed for that mission, okay? Now my next section on here, I called the Christological Councils. Okay, fancy word, Christological just means Christ, that they're talking about Christ. Councils means that um, basically I'm referring to what we call church councils. So a bunch of bishops get together and they decide stuff. That's what councils are. We've had 23 of them in the history of the church, although the Eastern churches would disagree with us. Um, they only think we had seven or eight of them. Um, part of our arguments and debates. Um, but we've had 23, at least in the West, and the early ones are centered on Christ and who he is. So the first one is in 325, okay? Uh, and in this first Council of Nicaea, well, that's not technically, stop, stop. 
it's not technically the first council, but it's the number one that we number. Um, so it's in the year 325. So this is 12 years after Christianity is legalized. 12? 313? Is it 313? I think it's 313. Anyways, within 20 years of Christianity being legalized, we're already having this debate. And so what comes out of Nicaea is this recognition that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was not adopted by God. That was one of these um, things running around these ideas that he was a human being who was simply adopted by God and given all this power, that he wasn't um, divine when he was born. Um, and so that's where they come up with this term begotten, that he was not made, but he was of this same kind of thing as the Father. And um, most Christians have their creed. Um, the, the creed is pretty common to most Christians because of how ancient it is. And it was first written here at Nicaea, right? So we call it the Nicene Creed. Um, and its first draft was at this church council. So that creed is 1,700 years old. Um, and we've been saying it pretty much every Sunday since. Um, and this, it's shared amongst all churches. So the Eastern churches have the same creed as us. Um, they have one less word in it uh, than we do if you're doing the wording in Latin. Um, and then the Protestant churches have generally the same creed as us as well. Um, so it all, that all comes from Nicaea. Now, there's a few other councils that aren't listed in here. Um, a few years later, they have a council of Constantinople um, that um, Constantine called because they were still not getting along. So he basically said, figure your stuff out and get along. And they made a few more tweaks to the creed. So technically it's the Niceo-Constantinopolitan creed, but Nicene creed is way easier to say. Um, so the form that it is in today came about, um, I think it was about 30 years after Nicaea. Anyways, this isn't the church history class, so I'll try and move along. Um, the next big one was Ephesus. So the Council of Ephesus, um, and this is one where we talked about Mary a lot. Um, so this is the one where we say we can call Mary the mother of God. Um, you'll see her called the Theotokos, and that's the Greek way of saying the mother of God. It also translates into bearer of God. Um, and the reason it was a huge debate is, again, just going back to understanding Jesus. So every time you see us arguing about Mary, the reason we argue about Mary is because it has implications for what we believe about Jesus, right? Um, if Mary isn't the mother of God, then Jesus isn't God, is essentially one side of the argument. Um, and so if we can't say she's the mother of God, then what does that mean about Jesus? Um, and so that's the point that won out, is that just, since Jesus is God, we can say Mary is the mother of God. Um, it gets a lot more technical than that, but I have to look it up in a book to get to the technicality stuff. Um, in 451, you have the Council of Chalcedon. Um, so this is just, it's really technical, this one was. Um, essentially, Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. He's true God. He's true man. 
Um, he's not like something that gets mixed together in a blender, right? Like a, a freakish half human, half God hybrid, right? That's not what Jesus is. Um, and so that's what this council is telling us is he's fully both. Um, and then they have the second council of Constantinople. There's one person in Jesus Christ. Um, and the reason that's important is because his actions are human actions. They're done by the person of Jesus Christ, but they're human actions, which means they're actions that we also can do, which is pretty incredible, the implications of that statement, because that means that all the miracles that Jesus did, we can do with the grace of God. It means the resurrection, that is something we can do with the grace of God. It's really actually important, um, this one, uh, for us to, to know about. Um, and we have done, like we have seen these miracles done by people. Um, you know, at the uh, end of one of the Gospels, somewhere in the Gospels, um, Jesus says that his disciples will do even greater things than he on this earth. And that doesn't mean that we're going to become more God than him. It means that through the gifts given to us, we'll work great miracles just like him. So you see saints who um, are called wonder workers because of all the miracles that occurred um, through their intercession during their life here on earth. Um, it's, it's such a cool name. St. Gregory Thaumaturgus, St. Gregory the Wonder Worker. I just think that's fun to say, right? And his whole thing is, he was a very holy man, but so many miracles were worked through his intercession while he was alive. Um, St. Um, Andre Bessette, he's a Canadian saint. Um, his shrine is in Montreal. And the walls, I've been there, so the walls are covered with crutches and basically during his life, he healed leg ailments of thousands of people and they left their crutches there and they put them on the wall. Um, you know, so we have these miracles still happening um, because it's not something only God can do. It is something only God can do, but we can intercede and do those on his behalf with his grace and with the power that comes from him. So that second council of Constantinople is actually a really cool thing to know, right? Um, and anyways, I'm going to go down a deep, deep rabbit hole. Um, but I have a little bit of extra time today, so I can do that. So like you have that line in the Gospels, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this tree, move, and it will move. You will say to this mountain, move, and it will move. Um, there's actually a saint in the Eastern traditions. I forget his name, but he's in Egypt uh, where this happened. And Whoever the political guy in charge was, was not a big fan of Christians. And he basically said, okay, this is what your gospel says, that if you have this faith that you can move the mountain, all right, you have three days, move the mountain. Otherwise you're out of here, lose your head. So the saint uh, got his Christians to pray with him, prayed himself. They went and uh, did fasting and things like that. And at the end of the three days, um, the 
governor or whatever it was came and said, all right, show me. And the mountain was seen lifting up from the ground and then going back down. And he was convinced, and I think he became Christian. <laughs> so, like, that's something I would like to go see, you know? I mean, a lot of miracles are really cool, but that's one that it's like, that would be pretty impressive. I would like to see that one. Um, and then uh, the bullets I put under here are just a few things like care for the poor and, and things like that um, are what we constantly do. Um, these are the human actions we're called to do, and it's through those actions we become holy. Um, but those shouldn't be underestimated either, um, because for those people, that could be like the answer to their prayers from God, right? Um, and then I put heresies. So heresies is what we call the guys who lost the debates, <laughs> all right? Um, and continued spreading these ideas. We had to come up with a name for them. Um, so Gnosticism is a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, the main thrust of it is those were the ones who said that Jesus wasn't human. Yeah, he wasn't human. Um, but the Gnostics come up with all sorts of crazy stuff, and they're not very unified. So there's many different kinds of Gnostics. Um, and the most important thing about the Gnostics is there's like some sort of secret knowledge that's going to save you. So if I know this one thing, then I get to go to heaven. Um, and you actually see that pattern um, even still today. Like people think if I just know this one thing, that's going to get me to heaven. The reality is it's not a secret what you have to know. You have to know Jesus and you have to follow him. And that's really hard. And people don't want to do the hard thing, so they try and find other ways around it. Um, that's why Gnosticism is still a popular thing. We just don't call it that anymore. Um, we have one called Arianism because the guy who spouted it off the most was named Arius, and that's what you do. You get it named after you if you're the main guy. And so Arius said that Jesus was not fully God, that he's human and he's got this special thing going on with God. Um, that was one of them that was um, in the Council of Nicaea. Um, St. Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea. And so sometimes on the internet, amongst Catholic circles, you will see a fun meme come around Christmas time um, regarding St. Nicholas and his interactions with Arius. And uh, the legend is basically that St. Nicholas was so infuriated by Arius that he punched him. And uh, the reality is he probably would have gotten kicked out of the council for, doing, council for doing that. But it's really fun to think about that Arius was so offensive to St. Nicholas that he just clobbers the guy, right? Um, but the, the meme that's really funny is uh, it's like a picture of uh, St. Nicholas and then like a picture of Arius or icons of them. And the, the caption is... Um, um, what is it? Um, it's uh, time for giving out presents and punching heretics, and I'm all out of presents, you know? <laughs> Anyways, I get a great chuckle out of that one. Um, it's, like I said, probably not true, but um, it does kind of speak to how important these debates were to the people at the time, that that's like something that seems legitimate. Um, adoptionism. Oh, that's the one where uh, Jesus is human, but God adopts him and kind of makes him special. Um, he does 
make him special. He just doesn't adopt him to do it. Um, and then Nestorianism is one that really just confuses me. I don't understand it. It's more confusing than the right answer, I think. Um, but essentially, that's one of them that Second Constantinople was trying to argue against. Um, that he's like sort of human, but not entirely. Um, yeah, it's one of these weird mixed things. And I've had it explained to me half a dozen times, and it just doesn't go through my brain, that one. But it's one you'll hear about. Um, yeah. Okay. Next bullet point I have is Savior. And I thought that would be a good one to, excuse me, I thought that would be a good one to kind of finish with, that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Um, so I have this quote from St. Gregory Nazianzen. Um, so this would have been, he was one of the Cappadocian fathers. Um, so for um, 5th-ish century, I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and so Jesus became, God became fully human and was fully divine. And he did that in order to save us. And he had to do it that way to save us. So St. Gregory says, um, if we put our trust in like a human, that's silly. It's not going to work because we know humans and they're not capable of doing what needs to be done to save us. Um, but God became man and assumed our humanity because that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. So that's the part I put in italics. Essentially what that means is when God became human, he united humanity with divinity and he gave us a path forward and he made it possible for us to be healed. Um, there's this thing that you'll hear Catholics say a lot and we don't know where it comes from. That which is not assumed is not saved. And this is where that comes from. Um, and so there's a little bit more in there, but essentially what that's saying is that God became one of us to save us. And anything that argues against him being fully human um, is saying that we aren't saved. And that's a pretty bad situation to be in. Um, so we have a few other statements about Christ. Um, since I figured we were talking about Jesus today, I might as well get through the rest of his life. Um, he was born, and we don't have much account of the first 30 years of his life, so we have the account of his birth, um, and then we have the account of the finding in the temple when he was about 12 years old, and that um, Jesus was a 12-year-old in the temple teaching all the scholars of the law about the law. They were very impressed with this young man who um, was showing them all up at their own game. Um, and Mary and Joseph had left town thinking that he was with a relative because families were um, much closer back then. Um, extended families were basically, th there wasn't such a thing as an extended family. It was all just family, right? And so they just figured he was with someone else. Well, 
Lo and behold, he's not with anybody on the caravan, so Mary and Joseph go looking for him to find him, and they look in the temple, and he's in the temple doing this teaching. And it's this crazy encounter where um, Jesus seems surprised that they didn't know he was here. Um, he said he has to be about the work of his father. And so Mary and Joseph, it shows you they're, they're, while they're sinless, like they didn't quite grasp what was going on yet, um, not in its entirety. So um, they, they bring Jesus home with them, and it says he is obedient to them um, as a son would be to his parents. And the, the rest of his 20 years before he does his public ministry is kind of hidden. Um, this hidden life of the home, which is uh, really great for us to hear that um, Jesus spent 30 years at home with his mom and dad. You know, uh, Joseph died before his public ministry. We don't know exactly when, but it reminds us how important our own family life is. Um, that that's where we're formed and where we grow and, and all those great things. Uh, then um, when he is about 30, um, he is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. Um, we have that episode where the one of uh, those things I quoted here, you have the voice coming from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You have the miracle of the wedding at Cana where uh, Jesus throw, shows us that he knows how to throw a heck of a party, right? Um, that's how I like to phrase it at weddings, that's what I say. Um, but essentially the changing of the water into wine. Um, and then going from there, he begins this public ministry where he collects his apostles, he collects the disciples, he teaches in parables, he teaches the new law, he gives the Beatitudes, all of that public ministry takes about three years. And at the culmination of that three years, he's managed to agitate the Jewish authorities so much that they decide it is time for him to die. And so that's when we have the most important events of our Lord's life. Um, and also the ones that are perhaps the hardest to confront because we don't like thinking about torture and death. Um, but that's what happened to Jesus. He suffered. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And we talked a bit about this last week, that that's how he chose to destroy sin and death. Um, and then we talked a little bit about how he descended into hell so that he could free the just souls that were waiting for heaven to open up. Um, and then on the third day after his death, he rose again. Um, this is something prophesied in the scriptures a number of times. Um, that there would be this three-day kind of darkness thing going on. And then at the end of his resurrection, so we celebrate his ascension into heaven. So um, if you look at our Catholic calendar for the year, um, we celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday, and then 50 days later we celebrate the ascension. Usually we're supposed to, sorry, hang on silly church politics things in my head that I have to be okay with. So we celebrate the Ascension. It's more like 53 days later. Um, nobody ever said the church was good at counting. Um, <laughs> so the Ascension is when um, Jesus returns fully to heaven, uh, body and soul, um, 
however you would understand that body and soul to be. Um, so he returns to the Father to be in union with him for the rest of eternity. And that's when he leaves his church on this earth to go out and spread the good news. Um, and so when we talk about the church, we'll talk about the ascension because the ascension is actually this great mystery um, bound up with the establishment of the church. Um, but we had already been saved by Christ through his death and resurrection. Um, and then my final statement there is just, he's the savior of all. He came to save every human being. He took upon himself everything which was human that required salvation. Um, and so, yeah, every human being is saved through Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, this is something that our churches and such have actually struggled with a lot. Um, you have a very tragic and sad history in the United States Catholic Church of Racism, for example, um, where we don't remember that he's the savior of all. Uh, luckily, we removed our head from our posterior and figured that one out at some point. Um, but uh, Christ came to save everybody. Um, and you see this from the very beginning. Um, you see slaves converting to Christianity and they're not able to practice it, but they believe. That's the important part. You see um, wealthy families in Rome converting to Christianity. So it's every class, every race, every nation is invited to be saved by Christ. Um, so to wrap it up, we're called Christians because we follow Christ, which is that title for Jesus. Uh, so we need to know who he is. Um, there's a lot more I could talk about. Um, I have a PDF I put together that is excruciatingly long. Um, <laughs> you don't need to read all of it, but if you want to, you can. Um, so uh, in that PDF, I have a link to this flip book thing online because I couldn't find a PDF of it and they wouldn't let me download it and it didn't feel right stealing it from Kindle. Um, <laughs> so it's called the U.S. Catechism for Adults. Um, in chapter seven, which is only about 10 pages long, it's a really easy read. There's a link to it in this PDF. Um, I also put in there a few sections from what we call the compendium of the catechism of the Catholic Church, which is like the Cliff Notes version of the catechism. Much quicker read, much easier to uh, comprehend and process. Um, I also put in there some big old chunks from the Council of Trent's catechism, um, which was primarily used to teach people who wanted to become Christian. Um, so I thought that might be a good thing to include, and it follows kind of the same layout as the others. And then finally, I put in questions 422 through 570 from the actual catechism of the Catholic Church. And those go into a lot of detail. And honestly, a lot of the pages are just the footnote references because the copy and paste job was quick and just needed to get done. Um, there's like 300 footnotes for that catechism section. <laughs> um, and it goes very in depth. So. It'll have a lot more information, but um, I just encourage you guys to, um, to read one or two of those things in there um, to just kind of deepen what we talked about, to, to reemphasize what we talked about today.